This is Joe McMahon from Smoker Fire, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode. But I am not alone. This week, we have returning guest and first-time guest co-host, Brad Truex. Brad, welcome to the show. It's great to be back. I haven't been on since it's the brand, is that the right word, brand has changed? You haven't been on since Northeast Scene Days. Exactly. Your last appearance on the show was January 2020? What? Wait, no, no, no. January 2021. Okay, that sounds better. Isn't that crazy? So much has happened, Brad, I know, and I'm, since I, the last time you were on the show. Yeah, and I'm glad I could actually be the person on the show that can be like, I remember the show when like it was way underground. I was on the show when it was underground. You were on the show in its infancy. <laughs> right. To everyone listening, if you haven't heard Brad's episodes of the show, He was on episode 18 and episode 46. Highly recommended. Go check them out. I highly do not recommend you check them out, but (laughs) I highly recommend that you listen to this podcast. I am a return listener, too, as opposed to a return guest or co-host or whatever I am now. Co-guest? You are a guest co-host right now. That's as big as it gets. Well, listen, we've got a really great episode for you this week. Our guest is Tobias Grave of Soft Kill. Now, Soft Kill is a quickly rising band in the post-punk scene. I love the music. I loved it as soon as I heard it. And Tobias is just a wonderful person to talk to. Really interesting, really engaging. And uh, that conversation is coming up shortly. You're going to love it. I mean, you've heard it, Brad. Tell them. I loved it. I just listened to the interview the other day while I was on tour in London in my hotel room and I like listened to the whole thing from beginning to end and like, and then immediately just went down the soft kill rabbit hole and like pleasantly surprised how effing great they are. Right. I was under the impression they were this brand new band, but they've been around for a while. They have a lot of material. They have a lot of great material and it's all kind of different, you know, like it, it kind of, uh, it's all under the same umbrella, but it, it's just, it's different and it's all different in a great way. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it also just has, I mean, like the earlier stuff has that like classic I don't even, stuff I love, stuff that I grew up listening to, you know, stuff, whatever. It's just, they tapped into the sort of like classic. I, I'm like one of those people that hate using genres to, yeah. you know, and particularly just because of the nature of people I play with. Like I hate the word post-punk. I kind of hate the word punk by the way. You know what I mean? Like it's just, there's some cringe element to it, you know? Yeah. I don't like using the genre names either, but I kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to, because, you know. Yeah. For all people know, this could be like a country band. I got to point them in the right direction. But they, um, they have sort of the, the classic elements of that genre that I love, you know? You'll hear Tobias talk about a lot of his influences and that type of thing. It has like a, but it's like a fresh take on it. Just there's something very energizing about their take on it. But then even like 
I guess I heard a new single that they dropped right after I heard the interview, which he was sort of, and he talks about in the interview and them sort of abandoning the, I don't even think abandoning the whole genre thing, which they've kind of come up on, but like, they were just like, we're open, you know, they just, they made their thing broader, you know, they like opened it up to like, now this is going to include just like the stuff we grew up on, you know, and it could be from where he was talking about like the, the MTV thing, like the early days of MTV, like you would go, you know, you hear like Bruce Springsteen and then like, I forget what bands he said, but, and it's funny because like you can like hear in the new single that they dropped exactly what he was talking about. They just opened it up. It's a really cool new single. The single is always running. You will hear that leading into the interview. That interview is coming up momentarily. You're going to love it. Let me get some business out of the way. To our listeners, this is how you can support us, The New Scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Follow our YouTube channels. I've got a main channel with full shows. I've got a clips channel with highlights from our favorite episodes. And I have a new gaming channel where I'm uploading content from Twitch and other gaming content that I create. So go check that out. And in case you missed the big news, we have shirts available, new shirts. We've got t-shirts just in time for the burning, searing New York heat wave that we're suffering through right now. Go to the Death Wish Inc. store, search the new scene. Our new selection of shirts will pop right up. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. And of course, give us reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We are trying to get over 100 and we are getting closer every day. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. There's a lot going on at Iodine. The Stretch Armstrong Rituals of Life pre-order is up. I think they're all sold out already, but double check. You know, that that's a hot record. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Go check it out. Maybe there's more somewhere. I'm not sure. But last I checked, they were all sold out. But there's merch and there's shirts and all that stuff. So you can pick something up. The Nathan Gray Rebel Songs LP US edition is available now to order. And if you ordered that, it's shipping now. You should be getting it soon. One line drawing, Departure 7-inch, featuring Jake Snyder from Minus the Bear. That's out now to order. And the Darling Fire have tour dates coming up with our friend Anthony Green this August. I think it's four dates in Florida, but check out the Darling Fire on social media or Anthony Green's social media, and you can find those tour dates. And there you go. So, Brad, let's talk about some musical recommendations. Now, what are you listening to? I'm very curious. What am I listening to? That's always like, for someone that is immersed in music as much as I am, that is like the most difficult question to ask. What are the last two songs you listened to? Um, I was obsessively going back to this record uh, that I've listened to since it came out, which I think might have been late 80s, early early 90s. And I, I just watched this documentary on youtube called beautiful noise which is really about once again i'm using i hate using the genre but just so you know uh but it's about shoegaze like the dawn like the classic shoegaze band like cocktail twins my buddy valentine jesus mary chain and ride who i still like listen to all of those bands but i went back and listened to ride nowhere which is yes. like one of my it's just, it, I don't know. I just got obsessively listened to it for like two weeks in a row. It came out in 90, and I'm definitely pretty sure that I got that record when it came out in 1990. 
But now we're 2022, and it's amazing how that record holds up, like holds its own, like production-wise, songwriting-wise. Like there's still like nothing like it. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and so I, that was sort of like the last. I went. I was like. I went back to that and disintegration from the cure. I know this is like, wow, real original, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just like, like that, that idea of like listening to a record from beginning to end, you know, just like song after song, like for both those records. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I just for like a couple of weeks was just listening to like those full length records, like not skipping around, like starting at the beginning, starting at the end. From beginning to end. So those were like the last two things. Uh, and like new stuff, uh, my friend who I think is, he's been putting out records for decades at this point. His main band is this band Black Dice who are from, I mean, they, I think they started in like Providence, Rhode Island. They kind of came out of that whole like, you know, RISD lightning bolt thing, like Fort Thunder, I believe. But uh, one of the gentlemen in that band, a really good friend of mine, Eric Copeland, has put out numerous solo records. Like, I can't even keep up, but somehow I caught wind of his new solo record. And I've been listening to that, which is amazing. Some old and some new. That's what I do, too. Yeah. And then I um, I recently saw my friends from L.A. who have put out some new stuff. They kind of like, they were, they're called Sextile um, from L.A., and I just recently saw them play. I'm plugging them uh, as a great LA band. I, you know, once again, though, I have to be like, they are kind of like post-punk industrial. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's like, <laughs> I just like hate that for them. I hate that I have to do that to them, you know? You have to, though. You just have to. <laughs> but that was great. That was like the first like show I'd been to in a while. Yeah. I've been getting out to more shows. A couple of those your shows, Brad, I finally got to see you play. And look, we're going to get to some more of that. Check back in with us at segment three. We're going to talk about Brad because we know he loves doing that. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm listening to. I'm going to tell you a gig that I went to. We're going to get into some more stuff. But right now, we are going to speak to Tobias Grave of Soft Kill. Enjoy. now with Tobias Grave. Tobias, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Absolutely. It's great to have you here, Tobias. You know, I recently discovered the band. I love the music that you're doing. I love the things the band has to say, and we're going to get into all that. But first, Tobias, let me ask you, how are you doing today? Uh, I would say that today I'm uh, a little fried. We did a full U.S. tour from March 15th till uh, the end of April, and I was home for probably about 10 days before we went back down the West Coast to do the Cruel World Festival. And then uh, we've been in L.A. for the last week and played a free kind of crazy overpacked show here in L.A. last night uh, for everybody that couldn't go to the festival. And I go to the airport at midnight tonight to fly to New York City to do a one off and then fly from there to London to start a European tour for a month. And I would say that I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) I, I oh my goodness I can imagine wow you've got some schedule on your hands but this is isn't this the best kind of stressed out because you're on the road you're performing you're it's it's happening it's all happening right now yeah it definitely after two years of not doing anything and going through all of the uh, existential crisis slash uh, pondering of what we're supposed to be doing and if it had been working all this time and blah, blah, blah. These shows really, uh, I guess, confirmed that uh, the work that we've been putting into it uh, since about late, late 2015 um, is equating to something, which is definitely good. Yes, yes, because I've heard of the band from multiple sources. I see you all over online right now. Tobias, I'm actually seeing you tomorrow in New York City, so I'm excited for that as well. Yeah, uh, you know, big thank you to St. Vitus for accommodating us on short notice. You know, it's just Europe is such an expensive endeavor right now, especially with uh, what's going on in Ukraine. So everything's about 30% more expensive And hopping into New York and playing one of our favorite cities is a way to, you know, kind of cover some of those extra bills. Yes. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Tobias. Where did you grow up? I was born in Portland, Maine. I grew up in the Seacoast, New Hampshire area. I had uh, a pretty, um, I guess at this point, like from the more and more people that I talked to, pretty typical childhood of broken home and, and uh, two parents that were both addicts and, uh, you know, a lot of time alone to try to process traumas and, um, you know, self-doubt and, and self-discovery without a lot of narrative uh, that might have troubleshot some of the ups and downs that, you know, we all go through. But I grew up around... Um, about 45 minutes north of Boston, which had a really good punk scene and a lot of options for, uh, you know, self-discovery through music and whatnot. Yeah. Talk about that. What scene did you discover and what were some of the bands that kind of shaped your taste at that time? Well, initially, um, the first show that I ever went to would have been in 1995. And that was uh, at The Rat, which was like the Boston CBGBs, so to speak, which is 
such a trope to, you know, every city's got its CBGB, so to speak. Right. But the first show I ever went to was a Connecticut punk band called The Pissed. And there was a local Boston band called The Unseen that were really pivotal in just bringing a lot of bands from all over the world, really, but definitely keeping a good schedule at venues like The Rat and The Elvis Room in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Cafe Savoy in Manchester, uh, Met Cafe in Providence, just having a lot of bands kind of coming through there. And I'm kind of amazed when I look back at now that Instagram, there's all these accounts that are documenting the schedules that those venues had, like the shows that I didn't go to blow my mind. And I got to see a lot of great bands, but we were definitely not starved, so to speak. Pretty much every band that was within punk and hardcore and then, uh, you know, just indie rock in general was playing there pretty regularly. Yeah. When I look at those, there's a lot of these Instagram accounts that will post old show flyers for a venue and I'll look at the lineups and I'll be like, what the hell was I doing? Why wasn't I at all of these? But I guess hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, I was 12 or 13 when I started going. I, I feel really blessed that, you know, my mom was enough of a believer in my judgment, whether that was right or wrong, <laughs> to allow me to go to some of these places. But I got to see a lot of good stuff. And I had a family that worked in the music industry, even though I didn't grow up with uh, my dad present in the household. He toured with, and my uncle toured with, a great deal of like more popular, I guess, you know, your standard issue 80s and 90s rock bands. And I got to see that side too, which didn't really appeal to me so much. But I definitely had the influence from his brother, my uncle, who was into a great deal of stuff from standard punk rock stuff to uh, Killing Joke and uh, Sisters of Mercy and Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry. And he, he showed me those at a pretty young age, which whether my mind was wrapped around those out the gate or not, uh, it's neither here nor there, but they were, they were there, like they were presented to me. So I got to kind of see it all. And I got to, through them, get to go to other cities and stuff. My dad moved to LA when I was 11, 11 or 12. So I got to go to a lot of shows in LA growing up too. Everything from like Weezer and Teenage Fan Club on the Blue Album Tour to the Sex Pistols reunion um, and on and on and on. Like I... Definitely got exposed to a bunch of stuff that I don't know that like your standard 14, 15 year old would have got to see. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty wide array of influences, which ultimately is going to be good when you start making your own music. Yeah, I definitely feel blessed that I was exposed to so much and that I had such a hunger for it because I think that my evolution into trying to find other sounds and ideas and bands that that came sooner. So like even by 16 years old, I was already trying to, I had already kind of gotten tired of what was standard issue, I guess, uh, even in the punk world, I was trying to find weirder stuff and had the outlet too, of just Providence, Rhode Island being a place that had a lot of really like the RISD kind of influence on kids that were making art, but also making sounds and, going to weird mixed bills, you know, seeing bands like Lightning Bolt and, and Black Dice and stuff like that play with, you know, a more traditional hardcore band like Drop Dead or whatever. So you're exposed to all these shows, you're taking all this in. 
when did you decide you wanted to start performing? How did that happen? First band that I ever ended up in was when I was 15. I hung out with mostly older uh, punks and skinhead kids, um, you know, non-racist skinheads. And I was definitely two or three years younger than most of them. But I, you know, that was my only real friend circle. And they would jam and play music. And somehow at, at some like extended house party where uh, a friend of mine named Adam's uh, parents had gone out of town, they just got the idea that I should try singing. And I sang and it fit and they liked it. And they, you know, as a, as a 15 year old kid, I felt like really validated by that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Isn't, isn't, I mean, was that nerve wracking? If it's I terrifying. was put on the spot, yeah. Like if I was put on the spot at 15, like, Hey, you're going to try to sing. I, I would have, I would have fainted. Yeah, no, I was absolutely terrified. And then that spawned that we were going to do a band practice. And what was so funny, I remember this so vividly that, I show up to this band practice and there's like maybe three additional people there and it's chaos and it's everyone has an idea about what they're going to do and nothing actually gets done. I feel like an instrument didn't even get plugged in and the night ended up with uh, all of us going out and drinking MD 2020 on the train tracks and myself and who was really my best friend at that time, Nick Kelly, like my mentor, so to speak, getting arrested. <laughs> so that was like our first, you know, uh, attempt at a band practice. And then I got a call a couple of days later from Nick and he goes, Hey, we're going to still do this, but it's not going to be with all them. It's just going to be you, me and our friend Bill. And we got together and within two practices, we took a bunch of songs that Nick had written, who was kind of like a prodigy, uh, drummer, guitar player, he had could do anything. He was a remarkable artist. He tattoos now. And we wrote all these songs. And then through my dad's connections, he was like, I have a recording studio in Rochester that another guy that runs. You guys can go there. So we recorded this tape of seven songs that my dad and his friend ended up mixing. And we ended up with like a really good sounding punk tape that was such a luxury. I mean, we never would have been able to create it on our own, within our own means. But at, at that young age, what was so crazy is I do remember too, like going out to LA to mix it with my dad. I was going out to visit him anyways. And we took, we had the master tape and we went to a place in the strip mall. There was tons of these places and they had like a hundred tape decks and you picked what color label you wanted and what font and what you wanted it to say. And they dubbed your tapes. Oh, wow. So we made 200 tapes and I came home with these 200 tapes. And then I had added samples from movies before the songs, which the samples were longer than the songs. Um, <laughs> without any input from everybody in the, you know, the two members of the band. And uh, Nick loved those samples. And I feel like Bill was pretty conflicted about them. Because they were very stupid. They were like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Black Sheep and like movies that had no business and like an aggressive punk band's demo tape. Um, <laughs> and we didn't know that you could like print a tape cover and photocopy it. So we printed 100 versions of this tape cover on like Nick Kelly's grandfather's computer and cut each one out by hand and folded it in and sold them at school. <laughs> but I wanted, I mean, it spawned an idea that like you could literally just do anything you wanted yourself. 
I didn't know you. I still didn't know you could print a tape cover. My first band, I I printed all the CD covers on letter sized paper at work, and I just hand cut them all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I ended up. I always. I guess what it did for me, for better or worse, is that it inspired this immediacy in doing things like this. Like it made me go, okay, well, if I'm going to start a band, we might as well have a recording immediately, and we might as well have a version of that that can be distributed. And that kind of rushed nature of it, I think it could be like, you know, kind of a liability from in, in certain circles and instances. But for me, like it just kept me creating and made it to where I didn't overthink things like at this kind of rough around the edges, immediate element that I think is still a big part of like what we do as a band in soft kill, like was retained over the years. Yeah, because I've seen you post, I've seen the band post online and say that you you guys do this by yourselves, right? We do, yeah. We're totally an independent band. Um, we released a couple different of our records on um, small editions on labels, and we, we never signed a contract, but we did release two records that kind of had like a, I guess you would call it like a licensing period that was sort of implied. And as beneficial as it was to have that kind of platform and to have somebody that was distributing those releases and definitely getting them to win more places than we would have at that time. There was definitely a lot of like, there was a lot left to be desired. And the main thing was like, I felt like we were constantly as a band that was playing a lot of shows, playing more shows than not without all of our records on the table because they wouldn't be in print. Um, and that, pretty much birthed the idea where, you know, we would all be looking at each other going, we probably should just be like putting these out ourselves. So is that how it works? Do you still put out everything yourself? Yeah, we, we finally did over the course of the pandemic, we released our first studio album ourselves that was like released out the gate by us. So all the other ones, it would be, you know, somebody did the first pressing and then we took it over and kind of just kept filling the demand. We finally did one where we like attempted to hire like a really terrible publicist and, uh, (laughs) you know, used our local pressing plant and uh, paid for everything out of pocket and, uh, you know, manufactured, assembled and shipped these records ourselves, did the the pre-order ourselves. And the experience of that as draining and kind of, kind of like overwhelming, obviously financially, but also like mentally. It was like such a, we made way more money than we ever would have any other way, but we like got to have complete and total control over something that I don't think we ever had a conversation with anybody that was interested in putting it out where they like validated us in that sense. Like it felt like the conversations were about business and they were not really about what was important about the record. And that record in particular was such a realized thing that it was really important for us to hear from whoever was going to handle it that they thought it was important, you know? Yeah, so so you guys, you just made the decision that you were going to do this yourselves so that you could have control over it? Yeah, I mean, it kind of just kind of came into play. It's it's weird to say, like, I don't want to, I, well, I don't want to lie and pretend that we had the complete and total realized vision. It was just that, we would reach a, a wall or a hurdle, say it'd be like a scheduling conflict. So when like COVID happened, labels that we were talking to, labels that were like dreams of ours to work with, 
they didn't know what to think of, you know, the impending doom of uh, COVID lockdowns and the lack of touring and how that would equate to any sort of effect on record sales, which I totally understood where they were coming at coming from, you know, but it was also a little frustrating because we had just created this piece of art that we really believed in. We thought was, it was just so fully realized comparatively to everything else that we had done. We're like, man, just waiting on this seems scary. And uh, when we self-released it, what we realized was that people being home and especially getting, you know, stimulus money and uh, spending probably a lot more time on the internet and on their phones or whatnot, that they, the attention span was directed towards artists. You know, any sort of distraction from uh, the chaos of COVID existence, so to speak. Um, so I feel like it was it was a total part of the win. Like us doing it when we did it was such a huge part of it. Whereas labels, I guess, in a sense, were a little like maybe they showed their hand in the sense where they thought like they basically said to us when bands don't tour there's such a limit to what we can do over here. And I thought that that was, you know, something that probably we spent the next two years kind of trying to unpack mentally. We were like, well, then what are they doing? You know what I mean? Like, well, they definitely have connections and they definitely understand the landscape, but what they definitely are more plugged into now is this is how to promote music within an industry that's evolved to be predominantly streaming and if streaming doesn't really equate to like a big financial payday, um, A, how are we going to recoup if they do invest money into it? And B, how does that put money in our pockets? Okay, so the record is self-released. We're in the midst of the pandemic. How soon do you start to see the returns of your work? Like how, how soon do you start to see things building up? It felt like immediate. It felt like the first single we dropped everyone, the response to it was just like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe this is how good this sounds. And we were like, whoa, like people are really excited for this. And when we went live on the pre-order, we sold every copy that we had pressed in that first day. Oh, wow. We recouped and made more money than we ever could have imagined to make and cried tears of joy, but also we're just like, well, what do we do now? Like we don't, have any more records. You know what I mean? um, and then we, we did a second pressing and then that sold really quickly. And then we started hearing just the general conversation being that like, there was just so much focus on what we had accomplished ourselves. And we started to see other bands put out records that, you know, there were some that had big wins, but other ones like the labels fear was correct. Uh, especially with newer bands trying to break bands that didn't have any sort of previous momentum. Like, you know, you'd hear about the record for about 48 hours to a week and then there was just no talk about it anymore. So it felt like there was a big build and it felt like there was a lot of people that even with some skepticism were like, wow, it just seems like you guys really leveled up doing this yourselves. But it really wasn't until we started playing our first show back that we realized what had kind of grown and happened and those the response from those shows the turnouts was just unreal yeah that i mean that has to be a great feeling that you're producing the things yourself you're releasing the things yourself and there's this 
there's this great reaction to it. Yeah, it was unreal. It was, uh, we, we put up our first Portland show back. It sold out in less than a week. Um, at like a standard three fifty, like the standard three fifty cap in town. Um, we were just like, Oh my God. Okay. Well that's Portland now. And so then we went on a tour with X, uh, supporting them. And it was, it was really strong. The response to it was really strong. And then we did what we, we basically got to San Diego and there was a COVID cancellation. Somebody from X we'd had like no interaction with God, um, got COVID. So our last show of the tour as far away from home that we were going to be was kaput. And so we made a couple phone calls and said, yo, is there any bar in town that like can just host a last minute show? Because we knew that people that had bought tickets solely to see us were going like you, you deal with the internet in the worst ways you, your fans love and support you. And then there's a hiccup and some sort of scheduling that's out of your control. And then you're the bad guy. So we were like, well, let's nip this in the bud. And like the 30 people that bought tickets to see us, like, we'll just, you know, they can come to this show instead for free. Right. Uh, And that within two hours, like we got to the venue and that was so, it was a 200 cap run, but it was so packed beyond belief and people knew all the words and people were going crazy and it ended up being the absolute best show of that run. And we were like, God, what is happening right now? Like, this is, we've had great shows, but this is different. And then when we started this U.S. run on March 15th, it was just every show. I think we sold out, like, you know, probably 70% of the shows. The rest were packed out. There's only a couple, you know, kind of duds, so to speak, that every tour has. Um, And we leveled up into a lot of bigger rooms that uh, we never thought that we would get into. And it was just such a gratifying and humbling experience. And we realized that people cared about what we were doing for the right reasons. And that part of why they cared about it is that they knew that we were doing this ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great thing. And you actually got on my radar first from your Twitter account. Now, you've been outspoken on many things, but there was a post that grabbed me. And I think it was from you where... You said you, you know, it was the last time you played New York City. And you said when you left New York City last time, you were all banged up and in really bad shape, addicted and everything else. And now you've come back to play this gig with this band and you're booking everything yourselves. And I was like, yes, that is it. That That's the story. That's my story. I mean, I'm not in a band playing big gigs like that in New York City, but I have a similar story with addiction and drugs and all that and coming back from that and finally living the life that I want to live. And it sounds like that's your story as well. It is. So I will I will say that the only uh, person that's kind of like in the mix here in America with us is we do have a phenomenal booking agent, Natasha Parrish. She's at Ground Control. She has an, a remarkable roster and we're like honored to be part of that. Now, the big hurdles that we've had, you know, not having management, not having a record label, that's really like how you end up on a lot of these these good support tours. There's somebody behind the scenes doing somebody a favor and saying, you know, I really think this is going to make your tour look good if you take this band out and I can get you to take them out for next to no money. That's really how that works, right? It's like all relationships I've it's learned. 100% relationship-based. And I started to understand that the narrative about who we were and what we presented as a band, that it kind of contradicted, like it's it's really like, 
contradicted a lot of the points that those relationships tried to like exist on because we are constantly critical of the music industry, constantly critical of people who come into the mix and take money uh, from artists um, often before they really have like any ground to stand on. You know what I mean? Um, and that bands are all of a sudden like their future is signed away before they even have any understanding of what their worth is. So, um, so Natasha has been great because Natasha's plan for us has been really like hands-on working with us directly because we know what we want to do and we know what we're trying to accomplish. And she has these great relationships with the right promoters. And at the end of the day, it's just really about going out there and delivering, you know, it's about going and selling out the 250 so that you can play the 500 the next time and on and on and on and in some sort of consistency. But my experience in New York City, like when I left and ended up there, you know, 20 years old or whatever, that was where my story with addiction started. That's where I tried cocaine for the first time. And that's where I soon after tried heroin for the first time. And yeah, I got blown out of New York City, like a total ball of suffering. You know what I mean? Like it was a really dark time and I didn't understand. I talk about this a lot when we play. There's a specific song in the set where beforehand um, I try to touch on some of these topics and like what these the record is about. And it's really that like, you know, growing up as a kid who's like, my genes are the genes of addicts. Like my parents both have the disease of addiction. Um, it's not a rare part of other side of my family. My dad's side, especially really, really hit by it. And I didn't have that dialogue. So I really didn't understand that abuse and trauma that I was experiencing as a child, that it was, that it was creating not only trauma, but it was creating this path that I was going on where I was like, really just trying to be accepted by whoever would validate me. And a, a lot of times acceptance came from like living up to uh, expectations more than uh, me kind of just being like, this is who I am. And this is what, what I have to offer like as me, you know? So the anxiety that I carried from all of that and like how much weight I put on that validation was like pretty crippling. So when I did heroin, especially for the first time, I was like, man, I don't care what anybody thinks all of a sudden. This is remarkable. This feels great. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that articulate, you know, like I didn't know like that I had kind of put up this trauma blocker. I just knew that I'd been given this incredible gift and I that was 2003, and I still didn't understand that I was a true addict, that like that I was carrying this disease of addiction probably till like 2016. Yeah, same here. Like uh, when you're in it, when I, I, when I, I first started having problems when I was 20 years old as well, and I couldn't look at myself and say like, oh, I might have untreated PTSD or I have severe anxiety or I have this or I have that. I just know, hey, if I get really drunk and do some blow, I'm going to want to go hang out with people and I'm going to feel much more comfortable doing it. And not until I was 35 did I even begin to understand uh, the disease of addiction and everything else you're talking about. Yeah, I, I thought that uh, whatever made it easier to associate with people because I still looked at that as like a key principle, 
you know, being in the mix. And, and I will say this, you know, especially about like the underground independent music scene is it is so relationship based and it's so about who follows you nowadays on social media and who's seen at your shows and who you kick it with backstage and all this BS. Um, I'm not saying that I wasn't in any way affected by those expectations, but I also, my own response to addiction was to be very like self-isolating or to be only really around other people that like could help cater to my use. You know, like if there was friends that also wanted to get high, I was in that mix, but I uniquely ended up kind of just being living a completely double separate life outside of music, surrounded by a lot of people that had nothing to do with music um, and obviously like the criminal path and uh, the streets that like kind of lead you forward through that being my like mainstay in my life. And then occasionally I would dip back in and create something artistically, uh, but with really like no understanding of who was who in the scene and what was important or what was popping and who I should care about giving a fuck. You know what I mean? Like there was just like that didn't matter to me, which is was turned out to be such a blessing because we definitely hit walls where like I know that I wasn't probably like properly accommodating of that scene because I just didn't really care who liked us. But at the same time, I feel like what we started creating together was just like really untainted by the expectations of those same people. And I said this last night to somebody else in a band where I was like, you know, there's so much focus put on these people in this, in this scene. And those aren't the people who buy your records or buy any of your stuff. It's really about like who gets in line for these shows and they don't care about any of this stuff. They don't care if you know, so-and-so they don't care that you're friends with anybody. They look at it all as one unified thing but they don't really know the behind the scenes politics and they don't care what I'm doing on Tuesday. As long as I show up to play on Wednesday, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So that was important, but yeah, it was, it was a long, long path and I got clean, uh, in late 2018 over a year and a half after my son was born, which was another really telling thing that like being given a chance to be a father and to, uh, write some of the, um, wrongs that I kind of had been put through by like having a dad that wasn't around that that was not enough and that it still took like seeking internal dialogue and seeking help you know and when I got that help that was really when like we as a band could not just lay a foundation but build upon it and over time not be scared of breaking it down just due to like you know my own self-sabotaging ways, you know, just like being able to continuously pay my rent and exist in one place and show up to commitments and be able to do them and do and follow through with tours and not only follow through with tours, but put on a great show. You know, it just was all everything you could actually think of. It was just like all of that was being squandered in one way or another at any given time over the course of the years leading up to that. Yeah, over the years, I've been in plenty of bands, but it was like House of Toothpicks. I didn't understand building relationships or putting in the work or focusing on the product or any of the really, really hard work that you have to put into any creative pursuit. And eventually, I just got to a point where I completely stopped doing everything. I completely stopped listening to music 
I would just sit in my apartment, get high, and play old Nintendo games or watch shitty Netflix. Did you ever reach a point where you just cut everybody off and stopped creating? It sounds like it sounds like you were still be able to produce stuff. I mean, I like if I look at it, the first soft kill record was recorded at the end of 2010. Came out in early 2011. I spent most of that time through 2012 uh, in out of jail, prison, whatever. And then we had like, I got out and we made like a tape of like demo ideas that was never really meant to be a soft kill release. It was put on the internet and then we recorded our next release in 2015 or 2014. It came out in 2015. And then our next thing in 2016. So it was like, there was these large gaps where I wasn't writing any music. I didn't know what was going on. Um, There was definitely periods of my drug use that made me really excited to buy records and to uh, listen to music incredibly high, you know? And then there was moments where like that was, I had no idea what bands were happening. And I came, when I kind of came out of that cocoon of that, like I looked around, I was like, first of all, this scene that we get lumped into rightfully or wrongfully has all these bands and artists now. And I really don't know who any of these people are or where they came from. <laughs> you know, like that was a that was a big thing for me. So it was cool because I didn't feel like we had any like requirement to validate any of that. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do, but I was able to uh and I think this gets this can get misconstrued as like being a snob or whatever, but like it just always remained important for us to like just only really care about what really moved us. And the problem especially in like the scene that is just, I feel like wrongfully just called post-punk or whatever. There's, there's like a high bar set because there's all these like remarkable bands in the eighties that like laid a foundation. And a lot of them grew and evolved and did remarkable things totally outside of like the tropes of what is now considered to be like the genre, which is rooted in Unknown Pleasures and the first four Cure albums and, you know, about, and this is these, these records that like, I don't even listen, I haven't listened to those records in so many years, you know, and, and missing the fact that like, even a band as obvious as the Cure, like they went all over the place sonically. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've never heard a full album by any of those bands. I've covered Joy Division and I've never heard a record. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was like, that. what was so strange about that is like, that was a band it's, you know, I found them, wasn't young, young, but I was like 18 or 19 years old. And I went through this period where I was like, I don't know what this is and where this came from. Like, I didn't understand the trajectory of like music of what birthed it, no matter how obsessed I was, it just really felt alien. Whereas like, I was also going through like a really heavy Bowie phase at that time, which every kid does. And that I could understand the parallels of how like Bauhaus connects to that and how maybe even Sisters of Mercy connects to like that and the Velvet Underground and all this other stuff like that all made sense. But Joy Division, I was just like, what is this band? Like this is so uniquely whatever. But by the time I started really, like I started playing music that I felt was like in that kind of zone around 2004. But by the time I started the band that led up and became Soft Kill, which would have been like 2008, like those weren't my influences. You know what I mean? Like they it was always underlining, like it was always punk rock at the core. I always wanted it to be drums and bass and guitars. And now I've got to a point where like, there's not that many bands that take that approach to it. You know, it's very drum machine and synth based at this point. 
Um, and it's very much like, you know, you go to Europe, especially where this, this is, is such a valid thing more than it even could be in America and who we are as Americans and the influences we have that I think are more like the majority of what shapes our sound that are so out of the box of that, like they don't understand that. They don't understand our cynicism. They don't understand contrast. Um, they don't understand kind of what I think are like the more American elements of who we are, especially like the aesthetic not being run of the mill for what that is. And I remember we were on, we played a couple of shows with this band. That's like one of the bigger European golf bands and they came out and they had never really paid attention to us prior to these shows, but they were like, I thought you were a post-punk band. And we said, uh, I guess, I mean, I think we are like, sure. Yeah. And, yeah. I think so. But that what was weird is they were like, but you have a drummer. And I said, <laughs> well, Oh, it's like that. So they don't even like, they don't even have a drummer over there. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't even acknowledge that they were just like, well, you have a drummer. And I went, yeah, I mean, so <laughs> did sad lovers and giants. And, you know, so did, a lot of the bands that, you know, chameleons, like the bands that really inspired us. And I realized that there was like a very defined concept for what all of this was. And I realized really at that point, like more and more and more that like, we just didn't fit into it because sonically, like what really is as exciting to me as some of those bands has always been like, you know, the real eighties, like post new AV kind of vibe of like Tom Petty and uh, you know, even Bruce Springsteen and stuff like just American songwriter storytellers has been kind of like a key part of like who we are. I like that. I like the idea of pulling from different influences and kind of dropping it into the blender of your band. I'm doing more of that now because in the, in the past I would just be like, uh, this is my favorite band and I'm going to try to sound like them. But now I want to be like, Hey, let me go for something completely out of what I normally listen to and let that influence what I'm doing within my lane here. Right. And with us, it was more like we would just start playing and you would realize like subconsciously what had kind of shaped it. And it would be after the fact that I'd go, man, this really has like such, this has like such a petty vibe or this has such a replacements influence here. And then it was with this record we just recorded that's not out yet where uh, it was the first time we worked really with a producer that was really hands-on. And, uh, he like, we kind of let him push it even further and he pushed it into territory where, first of all, all of the tropes of what people expect within the genre were really removed, but also it was just like, oh, I'm hearing these influences and ideas really come to life. Like, there it is. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I realized that just like as much as I was shaped by punk rock and shaped by things like we were just really shaped by like growing up in a time where MTV only had so much to play and they played so much stuff that was just like the 80, the original experiments of music videos in the eighties, um, which is just such a, a staple sound, you know, like there's the psychedelic furs and Madonna and fucking Bruce Springsteen, when he experimented with synthesizers and, and all this stuff, right? Like it just all is happening constantly and you're hearing it constantly. And so much of it's so good that even if you don't buy the CD, it's like I watched all of those videos over and over again, waiting to see like that one Metallica video or whatever it was that I was into as that as a kid, you know? I'm very impressed by the fact that you were able to 
still put out music while on drugs, especially heroin. I mean, yeah, my create my creativity just dropped off, and I, I it just reached a point where I wasn't doing anything. Could you still sometimes pu- pull it together and put out music and play shows? Because I mean, is this what you've always done? Like, is this is this just what you do? Well, no, it was it was that like there would be these threads of connection with people that had interest and it would be to where you know the first the kind of the comeback record is this record heresy it's funny it gets considered an ep we considered an album even though it's only 30 minutes long it was supposed to be longer but you know lack of resources uh and just internal politics within the the lineup at the time and everything's like a couple songs got cut so (laughs) when we made that record it was just during this little blip where it was like I'd come back to Portland for a few months and I wasn't, I was smoking a lot of weed. I was still very much an addict, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing dope or math at that moment. So we were able Uh. to create and take ideas and create something and, and make this thing. And then I went back to Chicago and was back on heroin and was in the streets and was running wild and was selling drugs and kind of just like had given up on the idea of creating stuff. And then, you know, that all of a sudden one day, you know, the person that we sent that record to that was a friend of ours that was like, I'm going to start a record label out of my bedroom. And you're like, oh, whatever, you can do our record. He's <laughs> like, I got those records in. And you're like, oh, and then it's on the Internet all of a sudden. And then people have their opinion of it. And there's a lot of instances like that. There was just like these blips of especially when you're really strung out, you know, there's constant turmoil in your life. So you're not necessarily able to keep one place uh, viable for a long period of time. So you're like, you know, oh, this relationship didn't work. So I'm, I'm here for the next few months. And we would do the band because that would be really honestly the only mental backup that I would have to go to. It's like either full force going into the void of addiction. Mm-hmm. And then the second there would be like a breath from it uh, where I wasn't like, you know, actively using opiates, so to speak. It would be this creative flurry because that was really all that was there and in a lot of respect has to be given to everybody that's been in this band over the years. Um, but especially like those that have stuck around like Conrad was that, you know, I would pop back up and be like, let's do it. And instead of them going, well, are you going to nuke it again? <laughs> and instead they would go, yeah, I'm really down to give it a shot. Let's go. You know? And then we would write a record and then the record would come out. And then it wasn't, it was once choke came out, regardless of me still being, really struggling at that point with crystal meth, the the two years that followed that, it was like that set some sort of momentum because the first song on the record became kind of like a staple song within the new scene of this genre and shit like that. So yeah, it was like, we just kept, we were making pure art and it was still, regardless of what was going on behind the scenes, there was this fan base that was there for it. I like that. There's, you know, for me, similar to you, I'd be in a period of substitution where I'd be just binge drinking and not doing the stuff I really wanted to do. And I would manage to be in a band and play a couple shows or write or whatever else. And then it would fall apart. And then, you know, like as I'm leaving the practice space, hauling my shit out, I'm I'm calling the drug dealer. You know, it's like. Yeah, I, was, I mean, it was for the, for sure. And then it would be to where we'd do the record and I'd be home and then we'd go on tour 
And the second, like my day two of tour, I'd already had it set up that somebody was going to slide on me with enough for me to get through X amount of days of a tour, you know? And then it lasted four days. <laughs> right. And that was, that became the big thing is like tour, the last tour that I did, like very strung out, like it was a 45 day tour. And I bought a, I bought a big bag of meth and I probably, you know, you can't just do it rapid fire constantly because everybody's fucking watching you and you believe that no one knows, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, it lasts so long and there's spikes like it, you, you'll feel like, oh, uh, I guess it's done. And then you go way back up and you're like, whoa. And it Absolutely. comes like if you, if you do too much of that stuff, you'll be in big trouble. Yeah, I totally did way too much of that constantly. And I would stay up 10 days at a time on tour. You know, I was like total psychosis. And but I was still piecemealing through it because, like I said, like my normal way that I did drugs is I would sit down and just do drugs constantly till they were gone and I'd buy more. So this would be like actually a fairly reserved period for me because like I can't just be blasting a meth pipe in front of everybody around me because I'm <laughs> uh, trying to hide it, even though everybody knows. And then I would run out and we would be somewhere that I didn't know anybody to get it. And I like any real dedicated junkie would know how to end up in a dope line and be like, well, this town only has heroin. So I'm back on heroin for the next 10 days. And it would be a lot of that. <laughs> and that was, it was at that point that I realized that like, I didn't, wasn't even really feeling good anymore. And that wasn't really the thing. It was just that the obsession of the use was a staple of my existence. Like I was consistently obsessed with using no matter how much of a detriment to like the live show, to my physical well-being, to my mental well-being, to my relationships, none of that mattered. Like I would be on drugs that made it to where being on the road was miserable for me. And I would still have to do it constantly because like it was just the only thing in my brain. Um, but yeah, it was remarkable that we were able to do that. And again, there was a lot of people behind the scenes in terms of, uh, you know, bandmates like Conrad and, and, uh, our old bass player, Owen, and Nicole, who's a key member of the band, um, even though she doesn't tour with us, but she did a lot of, she does all the mail order and is essentially like kind of our impromptu management. Uh, and she also contributes artistically, like writes a bunch of the lyrics. So she's got 11 years clean and it was a, there was a lot of her and everybody's combined patience and belief that at some point, I was either going to die or I was going to get my shit together and hopefully there would be something to hold on to. And luckily there was, you know, like I came out of rehab and uh, unsurprisingly, everything got much easier, you know? <laughs> right. Isn't it funny? Like I thought my life was over. I was like, everything's going to be boring. Everything's going to be stupid. For whatever reason, I was terrified of the thought of just living a normal life, yes. like getting up, eating breakfast, uh, going about my day hanging out with friends, going out to dinner. This all sounded like a nightmare to me. Like I was like, oh, unless I'm at these stupid uh, dive bars in Bushwick doing this and that, then my life is lame, which which just sounds so stupid now in retrospect. Oh, it totally, I, I felt the same thing. I felt that I was not going to be able to create sober, first of all. Right, right. It, it was such a like key part of that was that I was like cooked, you know, like I needed that. Absolutely. I needed to be up for five days to write a riff that could become a song once everybody else heard it, you know, that kind of thing. But <laughs> more so than that, um, God, it was just like, I had to really 
the pro, you know, the, the program Narcotics Anonymous like really helped me immensely because made me realize that there's not a lot of happiness in like a self-absorbed existence, but more so than that, I'm not supposed to feel as good as I, as drugs are making me feel like your body's not physically capable of that. You know, like, yeah, you're not supposed to feel like that all the time. No, is what I've realized. You're not. It's, just, it, it's not right. It's not your normal people. Like now that I have uh, multiple years free from all that stuff, I'll eat a I'll eat a square of dark chocolate and drink a soda, and I'll be like, "Yes, this is it." Like you're not supposed to feel like you're speedballing all the time. That's not right. No, absolutely. So I, yeah, and that was a big thing for me. Was it's like a it's a humbling experience, but you just start to realize that like obsession-based thinking in general, be it from the disease of addiction or otherwise, rarely equates to any real gratifying like response once you accomplish things. And it got to be where like things that I, I got clean and I just was like, well, I obsessively want this, that, and the third. Like I want this guitar. I want that stuff. I get it. And then immediately those things would be like such an afterthought, you yeah. know? And I just started to, and I'm not remotely close to being there or being perfect at any of this. But I just started to realize like that was like what was most beneficial to me was being of service and then also being uh, just being able to like keep my word. You know, that was a big thing for me. It started to be where like I understood I was for the first time aware of the presence of everyone that was around me and that their emotional and physical well-being and how I was a, a part of all that, that like the band is not what I get out of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it can't be that. Like, so, um, and that's really where like the big kind of more sociopolitical edge of a talking about addiction and uh, mutual aid and harm reduction and uh, criminal justice reform and all of these things came into play, but also talking about the music industry and trying to be like of some service to other young bands who have this great gift of social media and Bandcamp and DistroKid and all this other BS to get their music up there without anybody's help to like understand like, yo, hey, we're this band and we somehow avoided a lot of these traps, but we also got to look into those traps and be like, whoa, that's a far drop. You know, like we got to see that and we know enough people that that adhered to uh, kind of like the business norms of the industry and it turns out that like for 99% of us, it's a complete and total liability. Like it's a dead end. So let's talk about that. You know what I mean? And that became more like the sharing the music is sharing the music. Like I, we believe in the songs and they come out and they are what they are. And we believe in the art and we put our all into it. But I'm not going to sit on Twitter all day long and be like, Man, what's your favorite song off the new record? And <laughs> hey, what songs do y'all kids want to hear tonight? Like that can't be our interaction with a fan base and with our peers. Like it has to be, here's our personal experience. Maybe this, you can relate to this. Reach out and talk if you like need any guidance in this, you know, on all, on all fronts. I love that. I think that's important. And that's what I do with this podcast as well. Because when you come through what we've come through, Tobias, I was so lost and I couldn't see how fucked I was. And I had no idea where to turn for help. And even when I tried to turn for help, you know, I, I was cold calling psychologists and everyone was saying we can't take appointments. And I, I just dead end after dead end. And I, for, I didn't think 12 step would help me. I thought I was like too special and too fucked up. And I see people sitting in a circle on the 
on TV and the meetings and I don't want to do that and blah, 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 blah. So I like to have these conversations to let people know that the answers are out there. Like you don't have to reinvent this shit. No, it turns out they figured this shit out forever ago. It's it's all figured out. You just got to go find the combo that works for you. Yeah. And I think what's strange is that, you know, people are paying so much attention to like the evolution of technology um, and uh, the way that art is perceived and how food is delivered and all these things. Just like there's this whole way that the world's changing. But at the end of the day, you know, what affected, you know, Sir Isaac so-and-so in 1741 like that that mental those mental traps and what brings peace in that is like the same today and this is like there's luckily for me addicts started having that dialogue with each other you know and i and i felt i started to see that it was relatable that it wasn't just limited to addiction that dialogue in general about a lot of this stuff because like one of the craziest existential depressing dark and twisted realms that you can exist in is creating art because it's full of self-doubt and it's full of hurdles and it's full of misconceptions on how we're supposed to present that to the world and and what avenues we're supposed to take and what brings validation in that is often like a very polluted construct and i think that there needs to be people talking about that and in everything in general like there's just it, this could really relate to everything and i started to realize the, the biggest gift within a 12-step program in those meetings is like, how great is it that I can sit down with a bunch of people that humble me and remind me that the most heinous, chaotic view I have of myself and the things that I've experienced and gone through are not unique at all. And that there's a ton of people within those circles that can relate and help me process that. Absolutely. And I, I was such an isolationist, actually reaching out and having to talk to other people and ask for help was my worst nightmare, but facing your worst nightmare. That's the, that's the beginning of helping yourself. Absolutely. It turns out that everything that completely terrifies you and feels bad and feels like you have all the reservations about doing is like the most beneficial thing. And I actually had somebody say that like a speaker when I in rehab and I remember like what was crazy the irony of that was that when he walked in, I go, I don't want to listen to this motherfucker talk right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just having, a, I was on a bad one that day. Cause I like went into rehab with nothing. I had no clothes, no shoes. I like went in there on a bender and I was, things are bad at home. And this was like my make it or break it point. And I was like, I don't want to hear this guy talk. And then I did hear that guy talk and I heard him, you know, express that exact sentiment. And I went, Oh wow, there it is. You know, and it was that opening up and talking about what was going on had never been my issue, but my understanding of it and my lack of education about what I was going through was definitely a factor in that I was my inability to take from sharing and growing from it that I needed to learn. You know, like I could tell people all day long all the heinous stuff that I was going through. Oh, yeah. I would do that every week. I, I, you know, some poor stranger, I would talk their ear off. Uh, my brother died and my family life was tough. And, and they'd be like, whoa, okay. Right. But you're talking at them. So yeah, I got to be where I was talking to people and I was hearing them. And uh, what a gift, you know, just having, realizing like people that were in there that like had just gotten out of prison and had nothing but sobriety. They'd lost it all. They had to carry 
broken families and uh, family members and parents that died before they could resolve petty issues with and all this pain and and uh, darkness that they had to navigate and they kept coming back you know because that was so important to them and you know it got to a point where i went from so scared to die to understanding why people are so ready to let go of all of this and that was a really scary moment for me but it also brought me some sort of like weird peace where i grasped and accepted the lack of permanence of everything and that um there was different ways to feel good you know and that feeling good might actually be a collective communal thing <laughs> you know it doesn't all just have to be that you're bleeding the source um because that isolationism was not my friend no matter right. how comfortable it felt at times. I always forget what a, a dear friend told me. He said, happiness takes work. And I didn't understand it at the time, but with years of recovery under my belt now and having spent time pursuing my dreams and creating art and really putting work into the things I love for the first time ever, I see that, you know, you have to build a life. My, I just sat around waiting for someone to knock on my door and hand me everything I wanted, but that's not how shit works. No, and I, I mean, it's like the gym, you know, you just like, and I was, I always make that joke. I was just like, you know how much effort you put in? Remember that like wall that you had to climb to get up onto this, the roof of this building. And then you had to like shimmy through a crack in a window to drop 20 feet into this place to steal that computer monitor that you could trade for dope and how <laughs> heinous and heavy and hard all of that felt. Well, you're going to work like five times harder to stay clean yep. and be happy. Like, and it's really is like, it's like, with like anything, it's like, it's a well. You know, the well runs dry. You have to literally be adding when you take. And the the science of how that works is nothing. Nobody is born with the understanding of that, you know. And I, like I said, I really believe that it translates to all aspects of life. Like it really does. And again, I'm not there. It's not, I'm not perfect in any of it. But I, knowing that those answers exist and that that peace exists and that even like, Buddhists realized so much of this shit fucking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And that's why they started climbing up to the tops of mountains and living collectively in this thing free of uh, possessions and obsession. Like, yeah, these answers, people came to these answers so long ago. So we live in a capitalist society and we live in a society where we have to pay our bills. And we also have the ability or the belief that we can do so through cre a creative process and I believe that's an incredible gift. And I believe that there's more traps navigating that than, and, than most things. You know, there is no 401k and there's no retirement plan. And you literally have to build something that is capable of continuous returns and investments and things. It's not simply uploading your music and hoping for the best or signing the right deal and thinking that they're going to uh, make your dreams come true. Like that doesn't work. And they knew that again, relatable in terms of, you know, they knew about the disease of addiction and they knew about, uh, you know, the absence of ego and all of these things, just like, you know, kind of the, the root of suffering being related to all of that. Um, they knew this forever ago and they knew the music industry was a complete crapshoot. Like when the largest artists in the entire world were talking about it in the sixties and seventies, 
You know what I mean? And then you start to research it and you start to see that the concept of the long play record and all of these things, these were created by business people. They weren't created by artists who went, man, I really want to tell my story in 40 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's like- It's a music industry. Right. And it took the Rolling Stones and the Beatles to go, well, we're going to create pieces of art that fit into that time frame. You know, and yeah. then it- we're going to create this system where we can profit from these guys out there doing the work. Right. But it was also just like they were going like the they, you know, artists. Nicole always brings this up. This is like a big joke of hers, but it's true. This is real. It's that the creation of the record uh, in its lathe format cutting onto a 78 or whatever was a way to capture music for repeated use for free because you had to go see it live. Right. So. The concept of the record to begin with is already like rooted in a robbing the artist of any financial gain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the truth of it. And then over the years of releasing singles, they went, well, man, if we could just create, if we could take a bigger record and fill it with songs, we could charge more for it. And so then the first LPs you saw were these collections of singles and collections of, uh, you know, miscellaneous works. And then the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and artists of that era started saying, well, what if we like used that time length in this format to create concise pieces of art, you know, which became to me what I consider to be like the first albums um, out, you know, because jazz really has its own revolution in that same format at that time as well. Right. In a way where a lot of it's like, this is this one session, like this is when, Coltrane and Rashid Ali go into a room and make a record together based off of that recording session together. All it expands all genres and they're all kind of neck and neck in their understanding of trying to find air in like a room that's like airtight and and that we're suffocating in industry wise. So it just took, I just feel like they always say, you know, in the 12 step programs, you know, the definition of insanity. So it's one of those things where it's like, well, if that is translated to the music industry, if we're going to continue to do the same things and expect different results, like I don't have a lot of empathy for some of these bands. Like the next band that goes and makes a tweet about like not having been paid their royalties for X amount of years. And then you start to unpack it and realize that the second these labels, which are banks, pay royalties, they go out of business. This is just not, there's not enough revenue direct from physical sales left for most, not all, but most labels and artists to collectively strive. So there has to be a new format. Like there has to be a new way to do this. And I just think it's kind of criminal with the amount of pressing plants that there are and the way social media is, the amount of music venues are and how many people there are that still care about and want, even on this cult level, the experience of live music for us not to just grab the harness and ride independently forward. You know, that just seems nonsensical to approach it any other way. I love that. And I love that you're doing that because it just seems so impossible. You know, like so many bands can't really get the exposure without the help of a label. I mean, the whole system, it's all built like that. It is built that way. Um, And now the concept of playlistings and curated playlistings through Spotify have become the new selling point that labels who partner with digital distributors say are like the route. And what's so sad about that is it's just like, hey, we found out this way 
for you to make as little money as possible. But it's going to promote the other stuff that you do, but you're still going to have to go get in a van and grind. And we're going to keep all the money from the music and the record sales, but you are going to have this incredible platform to profit off of live shows and merchandise. Yet we either own a part of that, or if we don't, the manager that you signed off on is going to take 20% of that. And the venues through Live Nation and AEG, you know, bless their souls, are going to take their cut. And pretty soon you just realize that there's somebody's hand in everything. Yeah, it's it's just capitalism all over again. The bands are out there working like dogs, touring the entire year, and everybody else is collecting the money. And with it, within ours, the, like the business model that we have, we don't ever have to get bigger. So we are growing and, and I'm grateful for it. And I want to share this with as many people as possible. And of course, I want to play like, you know, 1500 cap theaters and just be, you know, have this different production level. I want all of that. Like, that's a dream. But I also know that as long as we can keep packing the three to 500 cap venues and go a little bigger in certain markets and make sure that we have an interesting spread of merchandise and the ticket prices can go up a little bit over time and people still want to spend that money. We, this, we can do it this way until no one cares, you know, like that's, that's the way to do it. You don't have to get bigger. And a lot of times these bigger bands that have so many people involved, like they have to reach an almost like unreachable place. You seem to have a very uh, centered and realistic outlook on it. I like that. Yeah. And it's all from the, from lived experience in it. And it's all from, having to reassess our concept of the dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then also my, you know, I got a dad and an uncle that work in this industry and they're all, this is just how this world is. Like they'll tell us straight up, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, we've had <laughs> great input from people and we've had some really incredible labels take interest. And it was really awesome to have conversations with them and see little concepts of their vision and and be validated for what they've noticed that we've put into it ourselves. But almost in all of those conversations, I feel like we've reaffirmed something that kind of has just kept us on this path. So let's talk about what we've got coming up. You said you've got a new record coming up. Is there any formal announcement yet? Uh, so we have not uh announced i mean the people people know that the record's coming that's another cool thing about how we do it like i'm going to twitter and be like our new record's done it'll be out soon you know there doesn't have to be this um shock drop in the way that labels are like well we want to like really lay it out in a proper way um we made the record with rob schnaff rob's known for his work with uh the majority of the elliot smith discography he did uh a lot of of the early record early work with back um, but he's worked with Guided by Voices and a lot of other bands that we really enjoy the sound of. And he's just a true, true genius of his craft. And we made a record with him that I think is such a logical jump up from the last record, which I'm so proud of in its own right. And being able to have that and harness that and know that we um, can present that independently is is like such a powerful feeling you know but that will be out later this year and we've got uh, a rollout for that that i think is part traditional and part uh really revolutionary and exciting and left field and we're you know laying out how we're going to promote that in terms of what shows we're going to play and what kind of bands we want to play with we've got a little plan together you know it's 
it's all just like it's part one big grand plan that keeps evolving and part just like spontaneous chaos which is cool <laughs> <laughs> which labels hate they hate spontaneous chaos they do they do but you're pretty much doing it on your own so yeah you know you get to call the shots fuck them <laughs> well tobias you know i really enjoy the band I really enjoy the things the band is saying. I like the advocacy around drugs and just making everyone aware of their important conversations. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight. Absolutely. Uh, and if you'll, you'll be at the show tomorrow. I will be there. It'll be a pleasure to meet you. Um, I hope it's a good one. And we appreciate your interest. And there you have it, Tobias Grave. That was an awesome conversation. I'm glad I had the opportunity to speak to Tobias. You know, I heard about that band through a friend. And once I got onto Twitter and saw the things they were posting, I was like, oh, man, these guys are down. Just, you know, what the things he has to say about addiction and the story of coming through that was was incredible. And Brad, as two guys, as two fellow guys who used to do a lot of drugs and then stopped doing that. I mean, those stories are great to hear, right? Yeah, it was inspiring. I mean, I wasn't even like expecting that to come up in the interview, but it was like I was pleasantly surprised, which made me like even more want to go deep dive into their catalog. Exactly. Yeah, it was a great interview. I uh, I mean, A, it was, um, I mean, like, look, so like I'm behind the times particularly with like new bands and like staying informed about new bands. Like I don't do social media. I'm not on social media. So I really rely on sort of like word of mouth or, you know, I mean, you were the person that, that told me about them. So you kind of did like a little bit of homework before. And then listening to that interview, uh, yeah, it just was like, I mean, it was, yeah. And I don't even like really listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, but I'm kind of viewing this as like, you know, like podcasts are sort of like, it's almost like when growing up, I, you'd see like a video on TV, like, who is this band? What is this band? You know? And I feel like almost podcast interviews sort of take the place of that in the current climate these days, you know, where it just made me, made me even more excited and interested to go down the soft kill route. But um, what I found most inspiring about the interview was just like, yeah, they like, they're, you know, like that, the DIY culture still thrives and exists in this climate. And like, you really can still do that. Like, it's always an option, you know, like, uh, and that bands can still thrive and be successful doing that, like not relying on, you know, the industry standard record label management you know pr machine yeah one of the things he said that stuck out the most to me was we don't need to get any bigger yeah they're just there there definitely seemed to be some just like like there was only a sort of like realistic uh expectations yeah like real sort of level like head on your shoulders about the whole thing I really liked that. And I even told him that. There was no delusions of grandeur or, you know. And to tie it into sort of like, I loved how Tobias 
tied it into this idea of service. Yes. Not, you know, just whatever through his own recovery, but like what was really important to the band and him was to show others that you could still do this. You could still DIY it. And I love that. When I heard him talking about being of service, I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, he knows what's up. Like, he's, he, yeah. he knows he knows he's in the club. But I really, yeah, I really love that thing. You know, that like, you know, I mean, just the nature of being in bands, you know, like every, yeah, like the whole, the ego trip, you know, like every, every band, no matter who you are, is just fully, you know, and I say this, whatever, in just the sort of general way. It's like every band kind of has their head up their own ass. You know, <laughs> yeah, they're just thinking of themselves at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you kind of have to. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the survival thing, you know, who else is going to give a <laughs> shit about you besides you? I mean, right. really, but you know, like, I like, you know, to tie it in to sort of the things that you learn in recovery, it's like, it's, you know, this thing isn't about me, it's about we, you know, it's about kind of showing others like you can live this way like you don't have to like do the old way of living anymore or the whatever the preconceived way of living you know like there's these all these endless possibilities and choices and things uh so just the, that was like really great to hear him talk about that i love when that comes up on the show and it's a surprise. I kind of knew with Soft Kill, but when I talked to your friend uh, Mike Burdan from Uniform, I had no idea that he had such a similar story to mine. And when when those surprises happen on this show, those are my favorite. Yeah, and and like knowing both of you separately through different avenues, like when I listened to that episode, I was like, oh my god, yeah, their stories are like so parallel. <laughs> I mean, just from the same place, the same area, the same you know, same time frame. It was it was amazing that you guys sort of figured that out on your own and I didn't I wasn't involved in like well but you know but now it totally makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tobias, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was awesome. I'm looking forward to more from Soft Kill. Great live band too. I caught them live recently. I would be so stoked to see them live. Are they coming back to this area? I hope so. Right. But if they are, we're going. Cool. I'm down. So, Brad, let's talk about us, huh? How are we doing? Now, the people hear from me enough, so they need to know what you're up to. Now, you've been doing a lot of touring with Interpol, right, for the new LP, The Other Side of Make Believe? Yeah, that just dropped. Yeah, so how's that been going? It's, we, yeah, we just started touring after the long two-and-a-half-year break. We did U.S., and then we went to Mexico, and then we went, to Europe. And then we just got back from London where we were this past weekend. <laughs> it's been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get into like any specifics, but it's just been wild for a thing that just sort of got back off the ground again. It's been like an insane roller coaster ride already just because of the current climate that everyone is touring in right now, you know, and we definitely fell victim to that in Europe, you know, and like had to navigate some really hard times, but made it through with all our faculties intact. But it was hard. And in fact, that's why we were in London again, was to make up 
for the last time we were in London, we had to cancel a show. So yeah, you know, like the the U.S. was amazing, and I think because we remained unscathed in the U.S. as far as like the not getting sick, you know, there was like this sort of magical thinking. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I think you know, I think most people are like that. You know, like we've remained unscathed with this magical thinking, and then there's the like, what if, and we got hit with the big what if scenario, but we made it through it. And we had some really good shows in London. We had a great makeup show, and the morale is good. The new record, I you know, and this is weird. This is like weird for me to say because I'm in the band, um, I'm biased, but I love the new record. It's like one of the strongest yeah. Interpol records to date. And speaking of like in the beginning, I was talking about listening to that album Nowhere by Ride, and that was. Alan Mulder's first production. Like he, uh, he did that, I believe before he did my buddy Valentine loveless. And, uh, and I just wasn't even thinking about when I was listening to it before this last run we did in London, I would like sort of obsessively listening to it and remembering that Alan Mulder had done it, but it wasn't until I got to London and I was like talking to the band. I was like, Oh yeah, Alan Mulder <laughs> mixed the last Interpol record. The other side of make believe. <laughs> And uh, well, Flood and Alan Mulder worked on the new Interpol record. But yeah, Flood recorded it, produced it, and Alan Mulder like mixed it. But like, dude, that guy is a beast, Alan Mulder. And like, there was something in, that I loved about the production of Nowhere by Ride, which is like the drums. The drums sound insane for like 1990. Um, and one of my favorite things about the new Interpol record is the drums. Like they're just incredible. Like, I mean, Sam is like one of my favorite drummers of all time. He's like the best. So the combination of having that guy, Sam as a drummer and then Alan Mulder and flood making those drums sound amazing. Yes. And I had the opportunity to see Interpol live for the first time when you guys played Brooklyn and I was blown away. There's always this old piece of my brain that, cause I grew up going to the craziest, most insane hardcore shows where you could die. <laughs> There's this small part of my brain that's like, Oh, unless it's that the show's not going to be good, <laughs> which I know isn't true, but like, it's still like that little nagging voice. But when I saw Interpol, it sounded so massive and, so good and so perfect and just everybody was so into it it was incredible oh man thank you i just went to that theater king's theater in brooklyn last night it was the first time i'd been back since interpol played there and i saw beach house and it was effing f- i'm see i'm trying not to curse you can if you want to. i know but it's like you know what it was it was like it was our friend wayne who doesn't (laughs) curse. Yeah. And he kind of put, and I asked him about it. He's like, it's just something I'm trying not to do. Like it's an unnecessary thing to do, you know? Yeah. He's like a teacher and you know what I mean? Like, so he really has to like try to not curse for his profession, but like it's somehow he just planted a seed in my brain of like, maybe I'm going to try not to do that. And it is so effing hard it is i do the same thing my friend mike shaw did the same thing when we were young 
So I, ever since I was like 18 or 19, I try not to curse because of his influence. Doesn't always work, but the seed is there, same as you. But going back to King's Theater uh, and Beach House last night, it was an amazing, an amazing concert. And I, I, I've known Beach House for a long time. And like, you know, they, they essentially kind of come out of like the bedroom scene, you know, like making music in the bedroom. And just they've evolved to this, like this amazing live band, you know, with like the full production, like the lights were amazing. It was just like, it just like made their music pop even more. And the sound was just so huge that I had an amazing concert experience. And that theater is incredible. I mean, it's like that, that's like an historic Brooklyn, like one of the oldest Brooklyn theaters. And it's just, it's like it's like when you walk in to the main theater, it's like you're almost inside of a spaceship. Yeah. So the whole environment, even though it's like far from where you and I live, you know, it's like a kind of a journey to get out there. Yeah. Brooklyn is big. Brooklyn it's is huge. Huge. You know, I used to live walking distance from that theater. Really? Yeah. Okay. It was awful. Yeah. <laughs> it it was really it was really awful, and it was one of the worst places I ever lived. It's also like quintessential like real brooklyn it's not like the like the like the boutique neighborhoods that we live in <laughs> you know what i mean this, this, yeah this, and i'm it. talking more the apartment that i lived in it was an illegal apartment with no heat or gas and i didn't pay rent for 10 months and the people above me were really loud which seems to be a recurring theme wherever i live but listen that's new york that's why you pay to live in new york that's what we pay all this money for <laughs> to be uh very unhappy annoyed yeah <laughs> Brad, I saw Greet Death at St. Wait, not at St. Vitus, at LPR in Manhattan. Le Poisson Rouge. Yeah, I'm glad you know how to say it because I don't. <laughs> so I just say LPR. Right. They are the, the best band right now, besides, of course, Interpol and <laughs> Soft Kill. Right. Um, yeah, you sent me a link and I actually was like listening to them on my way to do some exercising today. That's, I know you hate genre names, but they're like a newer, awesome shoegaze-influenced band, if we're on the topic of shoegaze. <laughs> right, that genre of shoegaze. Yeah, especially the full-length album before the EP. That's much more shoegazy. but they're my favorite band right now, and they were incredible live. The live performance only made me love them even more. And I have a complaint, though, and anyone who goes to shows, I want you to listen to this. Stop walking around so much and getting in my way, okay? I No matter where I stand, there's people walking directly in front of me. There's people walking directly behind me. There's people edging by me. You know, they could easily edge by the person right to my left, but they always, they always have to walk by me. All right, at one point, I'm standing next to a pillar in the back, right? I had moved three times to try to get away from people, like bumping into me. So I'm shoulder, I'm like pushed up against a pillar. There's a guy to my left, and he he has the entire left. He could keep walking left for years. He's literally rubbing shoulders with me. Now, I can't move to the right anymore. I'm pressed up against a pillar. So why does this guy need to be literally rubbing shoulders with me? Why? Um, okay, so there's a few things going on here, man. First of all, it's a tall ask to be at a show indoors at an indoor venue. And ask people to sit still. <laughs> it's never going to happen. Uh, the only solution is to not go. Yeah. 
or go to an outdoor show outdoors in a field where you could fully isolate away from people. And then secondly, is like, I mean, let me just say that I agree with you as an older person going, an older veteran going to a show. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be like disturbed. It's sort of like when you, you know, those like movie theaters, like Nighthawk or Alamo where, like in theory, it's great that you can eat while watching a movie. Yeah, but the, that there's constantly like a waiter going back and forth in front of the movie. Right, right. Isn't is horrible actually? You know, for the experience. So it's similar to that where I'm like, you're here at the show, pay the fuck attention. Why are you moving around? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the guy rubbing shoulders with me might have been a little. Uh, on a couple things too. I, right. I kept looking at him and I was like enraged. So I was like staring at him and he, he looked like half asleep and he was wobbling back and forth. So so that calmed me down a bit. And plus, uh, I waited too long to eat as I often do. So that probably had something to do you with it. You were hangry. Well. You were hangry yeah. and you went to a show. Well, I was going to eat afterwards. Well, still, shame on you. You still were hangry. <laughs> um, and then the other piece of that is is uh, like I, I think... I'll just keep it on us, but people like us are are probably way more sensitive to being out socializing at a concert sort of post COVID era that we're living in. Like we're really sensitive to our space and being touched, you know, by strangers or people you know what i mean i think so i think there's that element to it as well we're just super now we're just super hyper aware when like someone sneezes or coughs who's by you you're right and when i'm by myself somewhere my senses are like on high alert right yeah like a woman at the show thought i worked there because i was standing in the corner with my arms crossed <laughs> all dressed in black and she's like can i go out this way to smoke i'm like i don't know and she's like you don't work here and i was like no and then she laughed and i laughed <laughs> uh yeah good times so what else is going on with you brad do you want to do you want to dig in even deeper here and and share with the people what's going on with you no <laughs> i mean Look, I will say this. I, I recently feel validated because I've, I've seen some recent articles on this subject I'm about to bring up. We don't have to really get into it. But summertime, the summer for this person, me, uh, I have always gotten depressed. Like I always have this sort of like if it's kind of starts a little bit in May, but really gets more progressive like July, August. And I've had sort of always joked about it being seasonal affective disorder, which most people get in February and winter or like January, February, and like the dead of winter. That's when really like seasonal affective disorder is at its at its height for most common people, particularly people that live in like the Northeast or really cold climates, Midwest, whatever. But I mean, I've sort of joked about me having it in, july august and then recently some some friends have forwarded articles one in the new york time about seasonal affective disorder in summer so i feel totally validated for my depression (laughs) yeah it doesn't have to be just winter right i get depressed i think i get depressed every season change now for a little bit really 
Oh man, yeah. there's some seasons I just thrive in. Yeah, I love fall the most, but yeah. each season, like I, I, I like really want to get high. Any weather change makes me want to get high, and obviously, I don't do that anymore. But it, like, it makes me want to, and right. I don't know. I get a little. Uh, it just depends, I guess. But Brad, can we share with the audience the landmark you had this month? Are we allowed to do that? Um. Yeah. Eighteen years. Eighteen years clean. A clean machine off narcotics. That's 18 years free of mood and mind-altering substances that is correct. for Brad here. That is correct. And I, I point this out because I like to bring this up on the show when I can because, listen, I struggled for a long time. Brad struggled for a long time. Tobias struggled for a long time. And I just want to remind people, if you want help, it's out there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to do this yourself. You just have to find the right combination of things that works for you. Brad managed to do it. I managed to do it. I never, ever, ever, ever thought I would and was completely resistant to everything. But I'm really happy about the life that I'm living now, I must say. And I'm Brad, you are too. Yeah, I am. And we're still insane people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no denying that. <laughs> yeah. I think there's like, uh, I mean, definitely... I thought, I mean, as, as probably you did too, Keith, that like getting clean, you were just going to lead this completely dull, boring existence of, of like just living in, um, what, what's the right word I'm trying to articulate? Like the gray, you know? Yeah. Like just gray. Like this is it. You know, I'm sentenced to this life of like mediocrity of like never feeling anything ever again. And that sort of like probably kept us out there a lot longer, you know, I was just like, there is no other way. I thought I was going to get clean and literally just sit home and go to work and that's it. And the complete opposite has proven to be true. And like you in and out of desperation for me, I was like, well, if that's what's got to happen. That's what's got to happen, you know, <laughs> because I want to die. I'm not dying and like, I just, there's no other way. So I'm going to like, I deserve a sentence of complete mediocrity, dullness, can't do anything for the rest of my life. And yeah, just what you said, like, it is not at all, not at all like that. You know, since the moment I got clean and got involved in recovery, it's just been, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I've always, I've always just said it's like the most psychedelic experience I've ever had. <laughs> you know, like life on life's terms without the use of drugs, right? It really truly is. And it just keeps getting more and more psychedelic. Like, and I, I can't even articulate the ways, you know, like mentally, physically, spiritually, everything just gets, you know, like growing old and recovery is a completely psychedelic experience. Yeah, forget about drugs. Right. Life, man, that's the true drug. Yeah, I guess. but uh but just to say like you know it's also like we're still insane i mean i don't use drugs but like i'm still we talked about that earlier keith of like you know there you know like the definition of insanity kind of changes you know like there's the insanity of like uh doing the same thing expecting different results 
And then there's this idea of like pure insanity where you do the same thing, knowing that you're going to get the same results, <laughs> you know, and that, and that gets really psychedelic in recovery in sort of our way of life, you know, with like the behaviors and the, the attitudes and the, yeah, even like the egos and all of that shit, you know, but still I, I uh, would not want to go back to, and I'm also like, you know, I mean, particularly as an addict, like, um, who was never scared to use any drug, like it is really frightening what is out there now waiting for us if we decide to pick up. Yeah. And what you're talking about with the insanity of knowing the results, but making the mistake anyway, you, you know, you could go out and get high once and die very easily these days. And I'm, my brain is still like, Hey, I'm willing to take that chance. Well, yeah. It's like, I want to, it's like, you know, if I was in that insanity and want to pick up, it's like there, I mean, particularly because, you know, 18 years ago, there's been a big leap in chemistry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, of what's out there that if I was in the active disease, I'm like, I want that. You know, <laughs> like I want that new stuff that is deadly and potent and cheap, Yep. you know, and like, we'll just fry all of those joy receptors to burnt crisps, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we don't have to worry about that anymore. No, right? not today. Now we are here bringing you the finest podcast every single week. Well, Brad's here this week, but uh, he'll be back at some point, right, Brad? Yeah. I like your podcast. I like this podcast. And I don't do podcasts. I'm not a podcast guy, but I enjoy doing this with you. I still do not recommend listening to my episodes, but listen to all the other episodes. You know, my favorite was the, well, this one is my new favorite, the soft kill. (laughs) Not because I'm on it, the Tobias soft kill one. The Mike Verdan of Uniform, incredible. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, too. I made my parents listen to the show, and I actually had them listen to the Mike Verdan episode. Right. The What's the guy from Sparta? His one was good. Oh, Jim Ward. Yeah, legend. That was a good one. Uh, Zola Jesus was good. That's one of my new favorites, 100%. Yeah, I would like listen to that, and I was like, what is this shadow work she speaks of? I went down this whole rabbit hole of what the shadow work thing she was talking about. It's pretty interesting. I don't even remember what that is. I got to go back and listen. It's like a form of uh, like sort of therapeutic therapy vibe. I mean, it's not too dissimilar from some of the things that we do in our world of recovery. Yeah. I find that a lot of them are connected. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Similar, similar yeah. practices and stuff, but well, everybody we're way over time. We're just having too good a time here, but We hope you enjoyed the episode. We're back with a brand new episode and a brand new guest next week. So we'll see you then. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. (laughs) 